pronounce your name correctly for me. Vivian. And you run a roving, I believe is the word you use, art gallery in London, correct? Yeah, it's roving because we don't have a permanent space. We change our spaces. You can call it pop-up if you like, which I don't like. Is that through choice, though, or through sort of uh, necessity? In one way, it's through necessity, but it's a choice because we could have, you know, had a gallery far out, which takes a long time to get to. But then if we'd paid the rent for such a gallery in the East End or in the north of London, then we wouldn't have had enough money for the curation and the getting art historians to write about the artists. So, yes, it is because of finance, because if we had enough money for everything, of course, we would have a very nice gallery bang in the middle of Mayfair. And that's a very expensive endeavor. I mean, absurdly expensive. People don't even understand just how expensive that idea would be. That's right. And the reason that I choose to be in the center of town, either Mayfair or St. James's, which is near Sotheby's and Christie's, is because people like to gallery hop. And they go around the galleries as though they were going to museum exhibitions, in fact. And they are there. They don't have to think, oh, my God, can I actually be bothered to go, you know, to the east end of London? If I take a taxi, it's going to take me an hour to get there. And if I take the tube, well, we all know what the tube is like, especially at Russia. It's horrible. So people don't want to do it. It's hard. Well, and it's an interesting dilemma that's coming up more and more and more in conversation, which is like, do we hope that people come to the gallery and put the gallery somewhere and think that we're going to put on such great exhibitions that people will will naturally desire to come to us? Or do we try to put ourselves basically more or less like where people are in order to engage with them in a more effective manner? Well, I know just the big galleries did it. Galleries like the Gosian, a huge gallery over at Britannia Street, just by King's Cross. And which is quite a strategic place to be because it's near the Eurostar. But he then opened a gallery in Mayfair. Why? He won't because that is where everybody is. And then he can taxi them out to Britannia Street. The same as he does in Paris. He's got a gallery in the center of Paris, but his huge gallery is at Le Bourget. And you have to be invited to go there. It's a sort of airport hangar that's been converted. And it's fabulous, fantastic. But you has to have a point in the center of town. So I just figured we'd be in the center of town, you know, amid all the other big galleries and maybe we'd get noticed by the big galleries, actually, because I like to think of galleries as a, that sort of umbrella for little galleries. Little galleries are very important. They need support. Yes, and sadly, there's not a lot of support for smaller galleries, as in like grants and, you know, government supports and things like that. It's it's pretty much a dog-eat-dog world until you prove yourself. Especially now. Is it different now? So like, what, let's take it back a step. So how long, so it, how do you pronounce the name of the gallery? Just so I don't mispronounce it because I'm- Aleph. So A-L-E-P-H. Aleph Gal, contemporary. The, how long has it existed? Since October 2019. Wow. Okay. So you opened like right at the the time when things- we did the London Art Fair, then we had lockdown. Then we came out of lockdown gingerly and we rented a gallery in Piccadilly Arcade, the same one where we are now. And then we had lockdown again. The great frustration of the artists. It's awful. 
but you have a longer history in the arts. Like, so take take us back a step to like your history, because I know at one point you were an antiques dealer in Paris, and you have other credentials and stuff like this before opening up this new gallery. I I feel awkward calling it a gallery. Space? No, a concept. Uh, <laughs> it's a passion. A passion. Love it. But it is a gallery because galleries where you show paintings. Fair enough. Yeah, I worked with antiques. I used to find, because I had an, an antique shop when I was much younger, when I was married and living in Oxfordshire. And then I moved to Paris, and having had a French education anyway, so that was very easy for me and being bilingual. And I started finding for interior designers in London and, and New York, some in New York, fine antiques, French antiques. And I knew something about them. And then I met a lot of art dealers, and I more and more into art because I was interested in painting. I used to you know, haunt the museums, constantly in museums. So I started finding Impressionist and modern paintings and um, for clients, working with dealers and designers, and some private clients, obviously, that's what happens. So, But that's a very difficult area to be in. It's fascinating. The painting is wonderful, lovely art. But the dealing is very complicated. There are usually a lot of people involved, intermediaries, all that sort of thing. It's complicated. And you will have seen from all the scandals that have come out in the art world, there are many. And I'm not really a money person. You know, it's, it's fine when I close the deal. But I really love working with living artists. And I read a book by, it was the journal of René Gampel, who was a French dealer at the beginning of the 20th century. And I was fascinated by his relationship with artists. And I thought, I'd really like to do that. I read the book ages ago, but it stayed with me. Well, that's one of my big questions. Like, so you, you, ha you did work in antiques and all this other kind of stuff, and you worked with designers and all that. And then you've chosen to transition to modern artists, so like living artists. Is that an easier thing to sell or a more difficult thing to sell? It's a more difficult thing to sell. I find selling difficult anyway, because really, the art sells itself. You can't convince somebody to want something they don't want. Hopefully. You know, so what is difficult is promoting an artist that people, people are not confident about their own taste very often. Absolutely. So they need valediction. You know, one has to show them that this artist is worth buying, and this artist is entering the canon of contemporary art. So you need monographs, definitely catalogues. The artist has got to have, you know, a CV that is reassuring to the buyer. It doesn't mean to say there aren't great outsider artists. There are. George Stubbs was an outsider artist. Some of my favorite artists are outsider artists. But what you need is the galleries, you know, to back them. It's a fascinating issue. Like, I mean, so like, okay, taking that a step back, everything you just said. <laughs> so like the need for the galleries. I mean, for years, I always thought of being an artist as this romantic idea of like, you just make some amazing thing in the in the studio, blah, blah, and it was done. And it, it took me decades to sort of realize how important that relationships are and how important things like curators and galleries are because 
even if you make the most amazing piece of art, if you can't get it to the public, either through exhibition or through sales or whatever, it's useless. Like it, it, it didn't serve its purpose. Like to me, that's the end goal of a piece of art is to either be on exhibition or be sold or whatever. And that relationship is incredibly important. So like how, what, how do you like foster these modern artists in their careers? Well, a lot of studio visits are preferable. And of course, the last year was not conducive to that. Artists need, I feel, encouragement. And they also need to be told when they're painting themselves into a corner. Because some galleries ask for always the same thing because they can sell it. And therefore, the artist makes that. I mean, one artist, for instance, I'm showing at the moment, called Alistair Gordon, he's known for paintings of tape and paper darts and matches and feathers. Does these trompe-l'oeil paintings, which he calls codlibet because it's a trompe-l'oeil of everyday objects, and that's what's always expected of him. And I was in his studio, and I was looking at his notebooks, his sketches, his collages. There's really interesting work there. And there's a lot of sort of sketches that look like things that Constable would have done. Yeah, and I think, I said, you're not showing any of this. He said, well, that's not what my clients want. My collectors look for, you know, specific things. We sort of looked at how we include it. So he's, we've got a show now, which is called Podly Bet. It's in the Piccadilly Arcade. And he has brought the two together. And it's interesting. So what he's been doing is paintings of paintings that are half finished. They don't look like they're finished. They've got all the tape and the, the wall and the postcards and things that are stuck up on the on thing. It's a painting in the mid, being painted. But it's interesting because at least it's showing what he does when he's on his own. So it's very true. It's true to what he really does for himself. It's like somebody writes a diary and they really only publish our you know, or books of romantic novels, let's say, and then they write really good stuff in their diary. You wonder why it's why that, that isn't expressed. That's part of the relationship with an artist, you see. And there's a monograph coming out next year, and it's going to be very interesting. It's going to include all that. Well, because that's an interesting thing, the idea of sort of your reputation. So, like, he's already been selling, and he already has collectors, and they're already expecting, which is a word I hate, by the way, that you, you continue to sort of produce similarly kind of thing. And doing any sort of transitional change and really become, you know, evolving in your art once you're already selling and already have some some reputation is a very difficult thing to uh, pull off well because you've got to still be true to what you were while sort of dragging the collectors along to the new vision that you have and sometimes that fails miserably sometimes it fails miserably and i know of painters where it has failed when you look at their work after they've died and you cannot recognize one period from another I mean, to another, rather. It doesn't look like the same artist. So they have their phases, and that's not good. You have to see that handwriting all the way through, like Picasso. It doesn't matter what he does. You can still see the, his line. So you can recognize it by his line. So, yeah, it's very difficult for us, you know, not to be painted into a corner by the collectors. Also, these days, I feel like it's even more because of the speed of things like the Internet and social media and all these things, because there's so many people also giving their opinions. Because like in the past, you 
you would have a curator you worked with or a gallery you worked with and it was that and they were your sort of leaders your mentors or whatever but these days there's like you know the entire world could could chime in and say like oh i don't like this new idea you're working and suddenly it gets in your head as an artist you're like oh shit somebody on social media didn't like it fuck i shouldn't do that you also have the other thing on instagram where everybody's telling you how fantastic so the self-criticism goes out the window. I think there are far too many people being far too kind on social media to a bunch of shitty artwork. It's a real problem. It is. There's a lot of very good stuff that goes on Instagram, but there's also the lesser work and the work in progress and the weaker work. And all the other artists rally around and say how wonderful it is. It's not. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a photographer and Instagram is photography based. And so like I see so many bad photographs, but the person is really good at social media and cult of personality and all the stuff that goes around that. And so therefore, like they get, you know, 10,000 likes and a million followers. But like the work is not good. They're just a really good marketing branding person. You know, I mean, there's another thing is that, you know, having been somebody who dealt in works of art. I care very much about quality, and that has been thrown out since the 80s, all right? But now it's happening again. So I showed some work to somebody important who had liked it from the images, but when she actually saw it in real life, she said, not for me, all right? Because the preparation of the work had not been good enough. But it's a very good lesson for the artist who has actually taken it on board, which is great. But you see, artists tend to think these days, well, I can paint on a bit of cardboard, a bit of old plywood. It doesn't matter. I don't have to prepare the surface. Yeah, it looks great. It looks great in a picture. But when you actually have it, it's tacky. You see? And so preparation is important. And we're coming back to that in a big way, I think. Okay, wait, just to be clear. So you're saying that sort of craftsmanship and sort of the skill of you know, putting gesso on a canvas or using archival materials or whatever kind of thing prior to, you know, actually starting the work is becoming more important again. I think so. Oh, that's fabulous. Good, because I love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate of basically sort of like, you know, you use the right materials for the right job. You don't go cheap just because you can. You don't have to go to the art shop and pay the full price. You can go you know, to prepare it yourself in the old way. You know, you can have a piece of wood and you prepare it, that's all. Oh, sure. My father actually makes his own rabbit skin glue from scratch. So, like, I'm all for it. The traditional techniques, yes. Indeed. Now, okay, earlier you talked about statements and talking about, like, this kind of stuff. I'm horrible with statements. I have such a bane of existence of statements. I mean, I understand their benefits and their needs in the industry and in the market and all that kind of stuff. You mean artist statements? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not too keen on artist statements either. Okay, fair enough. I prefer art historian appreciation. Well, that was what I was going to get to, which, which is the, like... In many ways, in many places, they expect the artist to write it. And in many places, it is expected that a curator or an art historian will do that to create some context for them in the canon, as you said. So, like, where do you fall on that? Well, put it this way. The artist is asked questions and asked maybe to, you know, write something down. Yes, but that's not final. 
that gives the artist story an idea of what's in the artist's mind. But then you also have to have the appraisal from the artist story. Great. I'm all for it. I would love somebody else to write my stuff for me. Well, I mean, because like I've often run into the, the issue of I feel like I'm too close to the work, basically, and I'm not really seeing the forest for the trees kind of thing. I'm, I'm too fixated on the nuances and I don't understand. And I, because I'm so intimate with the work that I don't actually get a sense of like what the whole body is sort of talking about, whereas a curator or a historian or whatever, they can see that kind of stuff. No, I love working with curators and art historians. It's wonderful. And, you know, what's also very important, I find, is the philosophy. The philosophy of the artist, what the artist is aware of, and what the viewer brings to it. And what is the artist actually trying to say? I mean, is the artist talking about him or herself? Or is the artist looking at the, the, what it means to be human on a larger level? That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in the artist's ego. I mean, the artist has to have the ego too create the art yes but it's it that's not enough there has to be something much deeper and you know you know how people are afraid to scratch to go deeper because it might be painful that's what the artist does and that's why the artist is so interesting a really good artist will scratch deeper and reveal something uncomfortable yes I, we all hope that that's true it's it's very difficult because like as a practicing artist, you sit there and you, you make what you make and either you're in favor or you're out of favor at any given time because, you know, different subject matters, different materials become more popular and less popular over the era. And you just sort of hope and pray that somehow you're of, you're of interest at the time when you're alive. Yeah, but the point is that you're showing what's going on within you, but at the same time you're holding up a mirror to the viewer because when the viewer looks at the art... You've given birth to that art, and now it's the viewers. There is this relationship. That's why art is very serious. People laugh sometimes when I say that. It's, not, it's extremely serious. One is going through one's own. I don't think that a painting is just a picture you put on the wall for decoration. I think it's something much more. When somebody buys a work of art, you know, I mean, a painting or, or a sculpture, they enter into a relationship with it. It speaks to them. And it holds up a mirror to them, and they, they feel something. If it, when it's good, that's how it works. And it might be pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, I always go back to like the, all the artworks that I grew up with. My, my family has like this little small collection of works that you know, my parents are both artistic in their own way. And there are a number of pieces that like my parents are like, oh, don't you love this piece? Because they have some fond association with the, the act of purchasing it or whatever their thing. And I'm like, no, you know, because they bought it before I was even born. So like I have no association with it. So it's that connection and story because there are other pieces that they are like, eh, we just have that thing in the corner. But I'm like, no, that's like, I love that thing because like that was in my bedroom or whatever. So it's always interesting about how, the story behind or the relationship with a piece of art is, is very subjective. Very subjective, yeah. And also, you know, it's all about history of what it is to be human and how people were maybe before. When you look at old art, you look at the symbolism they used because every painting, every natural art is symbolism. Still life is full of symbolism. It's not just flowers and insects. It's about death. Well, people are also painting about death today maybe in a different way, using different symbols. 
that we are painting about our mortality, about our sexuality, about our desires, about our fears. Only artists and poets will record that. Nobody else will. I know. It's really hard because like the arts and cultures is such, it's such an important part of any any culture. Like, you know, we look back through history, like the Romans, the Greeks, the, the French, whatever, like and it, it's always arts and culture is the thing that sort of defines like who they were as a people. And yet we're so under appreciated on, on a day to day basis, it gets really annoying. Yes, because you see, as the other great artist Tal R pointed out, to be an artist is the only area where it's an advantage to be vulnerable. But you see, vulnerable people get mistreated. It's a difficult balance because like, you want to be vulnerable, but you don't want to be too vulnerable. But you have to be vulnerable to be any good, to be perceptive. You're going into a scary area. Oh, I, you're talking to a guy who takes Xanax on a regular basis and like has anxiety attacks. Not very often, but they do happen. Like, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, and I've been in therapy for years, so it, it's a very difficult balance because you you want to be open and vulnerable at all times, but like being open and vulnerable just leaves you open to being crushed, basically. Well, artists are on the edge, and I guess. I understand them because I'm also on the edge. All right. Solidarity. I went to art school, but I didn't do the right thing and do all the work. I was too unstable when I was young, and I didn't finish. So I have a good idea of what it's about. You can see that where artists have my enormous respect is that they work so hard. And it's very lonely work, too. It is. I just saw recently saw like a little vid, uh, infographic like uh, of an iceberg, and at the top of the iceberg, it's like the art that you see, and then below the iceberg is all the work that the artists do, kind of thing. Like, you know, I'll put in years and years and years practicing with a technique and a, and a, and a medium before I ever put it out into the world. And so like people are like, why is that so expensive? And I'm like, because I put five years of practice into just mastering this one technique to be able to create this 10 pieces that are on exhibition. So you got to pay me back for those five years of work also. It is true. People do not realize what goes into it and how many paintings have been painted that were put aside that were not, didn't, you know, catch that What's the word? Ephemeral. You know, it catches a moment. I recently had a guest on, I'm not going to say the person's name, but they they told me they're a painter. And they said, I said, you know, in your studio, how how many of your works are successes? How many are not? You know, you know, what, what, they were like, 100%. Every painting I paint, I sell. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm I'm lucky if I got 40%. But there are some people who put on Instagram everything that they make and everybody tells them how wonderful it is and they believe it. And time will tell because when you look historically at what has survived, how much actually survives? And Instagram doesn't mean to say it's all going to survive. It isn't. I hope not, actually. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful works being presented worldwide, but there's a lot of – I feel like there's a higher quantity – of mediocre work and not in as much sort of high quality, high caliber work. Yeah. But I think of, you know, every artist you look back on, there's always going to be the great works that they made. And then there's the not so great works and reason. And then there's some that's actually not good at all. 
shouldn't even be in the appendix of the catalogue resume. I mean, I think Francis Bacon would be absolutely horrified what's in the appendix. He would have, you know, slashed and destroyed things that were against the wall or whatever. But when an artist becomes famous, it's absolutely anything that the artist touched has monetary value. No, but I mean, it's it's a it's a fine balance too, because on the one hand, for the idea of having a legacy, like because I've had this conversation with people too, is like you want to keep as much as you can your sketches, your journals, your your test stuff for research and legacy stuff, sort of after you're you're no longer with us, but you don't want necessarily want that stuff to get out like too early or in any way that will damage your reputation while you're still trying to build it, kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know where you draw the line. I don't know either. I the diaries. You definitely do need the diaries, of course, for posterity, yes. Yeah. And the skin. Very important. But it's just that when they're broken up, like, as you know, I saw a Cezanne sketchbook broken up into individual little drawings, which were just, you know, this excuse, practically, you know, nothing. And selling for thousands and thousands of pounds, it really was weird. Well, but that's the kind of case where, like, you want that book, that original book, to be kept in a library or some institution as a book because it's 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 a day to day thing. But unfortunately, somebody in the mark somebody had bought it and split it up, more money. I know. I remember the days when we used to buy books and like take the engravings out of them and frame them, kind of thing. Yeah, I know. So sad. All those books that have been destroyed. All right, so back to the gal the gallery, Aleph Contemporary. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. Okay, great. I tell you where I got the name Aleph. It was from a tale by Jorge Luis Borges, you know, the great Argentinian writer. And there was a book called The Aleph and Other Tales, and it's a very strange little tale. And the Aleph in his story is a little sphere that's hidden under the stairs in a cellar, and he discovers it. And when you look into it, you can see infinity. And everything is happening simultaneously without distortion or overlapping. Of course, it's an impossibility. But it's, it's just an image that remained with me. I read that when I was about 24. And I never forgot that tale. Sure. We all have those. Mine, mine's uh, The Turning Point by Fritz of Capra. That's, and, and like In Praise of Shadows. Like these are, some, you know, they're always those books that you read when you're in your 20s that like influence the whole rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I love them. Be able to see into infinity, yes. Indeed. Absolutely. All right. But so the gallery is, it doesn't have a physical space, but you represent artists. Or do you? Yes. But it gets physical spaces. I mean, we're at the, in Piccadilly at the moment. In October, we're going to be showing at the In and Out Club, which is naval and military club. Although half the members are no longer naval and military, as often happens with these clubs, and it's in St James's Square, just by Christie's. It's in a beautiful old house which used to belong to the Astors, and they cover the courtyard in the winter months with a fantastic marquee, which has got white wooden walls and they've given us the space for contemporary art and they're very excited about bringing art into the club which is great well i mean okay so i apologize you don't have a permanent brick and mortar location well, three exhibitions planned there until mid-march you see well and i love this kind of stuff but i guess the question is is like is this model working 
More and more people are doing it. For instance, there's an initiative called the Auction Collective, which is run by Tom Best, who used to work at Christie's. And he thinks our model is absolutely brilliant and more and more people should do it. Other galleries who've had actual physical spaces are now doing it. And then even on a very high level, Marianne Goodman, who has got galleries in New York and Paris, which she's keeping, in London, she's just doing projects. She's given up her gallery. So that's quite interesting. So then, then again, if you're doing projects, then you will get specific spaces to show specific projects. So there is a new model. And have you noticed how auctions are changing now? Well, you know, now you have timed auctions online at Sotheby's and Chrissy. You never had that before. Well, I mean, it's well because on top of that, you have viewing rooms and you do videos and podcasts and you have other sort of basically online resources. There's a website now which never used to exist. Right. You know, the website with all those things. We do videos, we do podcasts. So that's a very important part of what we do. There's a lot going on. It's not like we disappear and then reappear. We're there. Well, and I, part of that is like, how do you sort of keep relevant? Like, how do you keep in touch with these people, the, the, your collectors? Stuff? Is it still email lists and all this kind of stuff? Like, or, you know, like I'm, I'll be honest, I'm getting a little tired of like social media and email lists. Like I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking like, I need to create postcards again and, and physically mail them because like, Everybody is inundated with social media to the point that I believe that it's come to the point of almost white noise, that you're just not even really paying attention to it anymore. It's true. You asked a hard question. You know, but if I got a card in the mail, I'd be like, oh, oh, okay. They put a lot of effort into that. Yeah. There are two ways of looking at that. But I mean, I see what you mean, yes. It's something I've been wondering about, whether one should actually send out physical cards or not. I think one should. Do you currently? No. It's an expense. That's the unfortunate part of it. Just printed a catalog, for instance, which is a huge expense. More than cards, for sure, yeah. So what we will send out are the catalogs. That's expensive, yeah. But the actual cards for the preview? No, we've done it by email. But that's what I'm wondering is like, because I'm getting, you know, I get inundated with emails about events all over. And it's like, we're all spending our money and our time doing computer based things. And we're disregarding the physical stuff, which is really what we're in the market of dealing with is physical stuff. And it's like, there's got to be a point, there's got to be a point where the, the computer related stuff, the, the social media, the emails is going to be overly saturated and there's going to have to be a shift to something else i don't think it's a huge expense it's a question of having everybody's postal address indeed a lot of people just don't like giving that out that's hard work it's very easy to email people but you know what which post <laughs> i don't make my address fit, you know publicly known but I'll, I'll put my email publicly that's fine yeah yeah the card doesn't cost much to print it's not that Okay. Well, then back to the like the idea of the viewing rooms and stuff. This is all still reasonably new. I mean, sort of it sort of got uh, accelerated during COVID. So, are do they work for you? Like, what kind of problems did you run into or anything like this to to come to some working model for it? We do everything at the same time. We do a viewing room on Artsy. We do a viewing room on the website. We do a video and a podcast. You know, we do a virtual exhibition. I mean, it's, we do everything that we can. If people don't look in one place, they might look in another place. 
It's just that people don't know where to look. When a message comes into you, where do you look? Is it on WhatsApp? Is it on messaging? Is it on email? Is, you know, you see it come in, you have to find it. It's detective work to find where the message went because it comes in so fast. It can be on Instagram, of course, or on Facebook. Or it might be on Signal because I always have Signal. You know, that's the other thing from WhatsApp because Signal is more discreet. So I suppose one sort of does everything. And not ask me what works. I'm not sure. I don't know. I just do it. Well, and that's the thing is like we, be it artists or gallery owners, like we have to do so many different things to try to find. Like in the old days it was, there was reasonably sort of step by step, like do this, do this, do this, and you'll connect with these people. But now there are so many different platforms and so many different ways. Well, there's another platform I want to join. I'm not going to mention the name because they seem to be having some trouble at the moment, but it's a virtual gallery thing. And there's a thing, an app, where you the client can see the painting in their living room. It can actually show it in situ. That's very clever. Like augmented reality kind of thing. Yeah, I want to do that. But they haven't replied for the moment because I think they're restructuring. <laughs> and then, of course, the other thing is, you know, we do provide the old-fashioned service of, delivering a painting and putting it in the person's living room to see whether it works for them or not. We will do that if it's logistically possible. Yeah, I know. That's an old thing that we used to do. We used to say that we would uh, like make agreements. When I, I was the manager of a gallery years ago, and we were toying with the idea of like basically buying or hiring a van that we would just like literally just bring a selection of art and, you know they would choose a couple and then we you know give bring a couple extras and literally put them in their homes because they'll fall in love with it more when they actually physically see it in their home than when they see it in some sterile location yeah but the only problem now is when people want to buy a painting from us and they're in america or new zealand or somewhere like that and then the transport is going to cost more than the painting. Not including customs, my customs. Because people don't mind paying the transport if the painting is a very expensive painting. Because 10% of the painting, that's fine. But when it costs as much as the painting, it's not fine anymore. Understandable. Now, speaking of that, so like, so you're UK based. So, but you again, you you have a very strong virtual. Uh, yeah, but Brexit is not helping. Interesting. And we're only at the beginning of it. How, why is, is it? Because so it's cut off your EU people from being able to get it tax-free, basically, or customs-free. There's all kinds of problems. I mean, I'm not going to go into the red tape now, but it's everywhere. It's, it's a real problem. Apparently, trucks are coming to the UK with merchandise from Europe, and they're going back empty because there is so much red tape. And so much, it takes so much time. It's chaos. I don't know enough about it to have an intelligent conversation. No, nor do I. I just know that it's creating problems for us and expense, delays, paperwork. You know, I just came back from Paris and I couldn't board the train because I didn't have my QR code. And I hadn't understood because nobody had explained it to me properly that there was this code that I had to have, which was that I had to get a, an email from the government UK website and then I had to go back again to get that code. It just said on the page of print, so I printed and I thought I had it. I didn't have it because I didn't have the code. But you see, I wasn't the only one. There were at least 30 people at the station who couldn't get on the train either. The next day, because my phone went dead. Because if you haven't got the internet on your phone, you can't do anything, right? It was a nightmare. UK, 
was a piece of cake going into France. You just filled out your attestation d'honneur. There you are. It's fine. On your word. Not, and I had my double vaccination certificate. I had a paper that shown I'd had a test that afternoon that I did not have. Could not get on the train. Had to have a QR code. It's insane. And we're being treated, and the British are being treated exactly as if we were refugees. It's, it's the same thing. It's an unfortunate situation for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I was all excited to live in Europe because I was, I started buying some stuff, household furniture, stuff like this, living here. And I, I, I'm finding amazing things in the UK. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I bought something and it showed up and I had to pay, I paid taxes, VAT on it in the UK. And then when it came to here, I had to pay customs, another VAT on top of it. It ended up costing almost as much. You know, shipping and customs and VATs ended up costing almost double what I originally paid for the thing. So I've stopped buying from the UK, period. Yeah, that's why my client in New Zealand cancelled the purchase of a painting. Exactly that reason. It's ridiculous. I, I don't know who instigated it. Like, I don't know if it's the EU or, the, or where I am that put it on there. No, it's here. Yeah, it's the British. <laughs> it's insane. I, we have red tape now. Well, but I mean, I want to say, like, you know, my, I, the, I, the theory of Brexit, I liked, but the reality of how it's coming together, I think, is horrible. It's just, just not working well. People have changed their minds. Who had voted for Brexit? Yes. Well, like, I, I won't buy anything from the UK and and have it shipped anymore. Period. So, like, all UK companies have lost my business <laughs> because of this. Yeah, and there's a big problem with FedEx. Because FedEx will charge 20% VAT when it might only be 5% that's applicable because they're not organized for less. Mm. So, you know, it is very complicated. It is. I want to know who's making all the money. Somebody's making a lot of money out of this, and I know it's not me. So, all right. Back to the to what you do. So okay, so so you just opened up in 2019. So how are you still looking for artists? Because it says on your website that you're not receiving artists. Well, that's because I get so many artists emailing me every day. There is a glut of artists looking for galleries for sure. Yeah, everybody wants to show. So one does have to choose. I do look at some of the emails I get. And some I don't answer. I can't answer them all. Well, but what, the question, though, is like... I went mean, to Slade School show the other day, and I saw a couple of artists I'm really interested in. Well, so like, that's the question, is like, how can an artist these days make themselves appealing, attractive, whatever, for a gallery or a curator? Basically, that depends on the gallery, because what am I looking for? I'm looking for something in the artist's ethos that speaks to me. Okay, but wait, I have a very specific question. So I'm an artist, and this is back in the day when I was, you know, 25 years ago in school, they used to tell us, like, look to a gallery and say, and try and find a gallery that has a gap in their roster that your work would fill. But I've also heard the opposite, where you try and find a gallery that maybe, let's say, also represents people much that work is very similar to yours. So there's sort of a style of the gallery. So like, which way do you sort of swing on that? Are you trying to like create a well-rounded roster with a variety of different stuff or sort of a, a style? I think you create the style whether you mean to or not. Okay. And if you have somebody that doesn't really fit in, it sort of shows. 
You know, you go, well, what's that person doing there? That doesn't really fit. Sometimes one might have an artist that sells better than others, but that artist might not really be a good fit, strangely enough. It really is about creating a community of artists who can talk to each other. And I think that's what I'm doing. Do they actually talk to each other? Like, do, do you actually get like round? Yeah. I've got generations that have talked to each other or been, you know, yeah, absolutely. I, I never imagined that. I always thought that galleries were just like, every artist was just their independent little thing and they never spoke to each other. No, they do. It's very important. I think one of the importance of, you know, carrying on and getting MAs and all that is not so much to have a piece of paper that you've got done the exam, but it's to continue the relationship with other artists for generations in, in, in each other. That is very important for artists. And, and today, you know, that, that's one of the reasons they use Instagram is to get all this feedback. Unfortunately, there's no scale on Instagram. There's no, you can't tell the quality. It falls short of what it, they hope it is. They should do like a star ratings, like a five star, four star, three star, instead of just like or not like. Yeah. That would be amazing. Oh, but you have all the love and the hearts and that, you know, it, it, it's just too easy. There's no criticism on Instagram. And, and actually artists complain to me about that as well. Yes. It, well, either one of two things. It's either there's no criticism because the only opportunities are to basically to say good things and that's it. So heart, like, done. That's all you can, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. Yeah, I mean, so media, don't say anything unless you're going to say something nice. So, you know, cheering everybody else. Or unless you're a troll and you're saying something horrible about somebody. That's it, then you're a troll, yeah. That happens all too often as well. Yeah, it's very hard. And also some artists are feeling that they don't need galleries. That they just can do their own thing on social media. And I understand that point of view. but. That's not really what an artist is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be doing their art and not having to worry about, you know, publicizing their work. I am 100% behind that. I am so tired of doing social media and being my own brand and being my own marketer. I would gladly give 50% to any, any gallery that will, will do take on all that work for me. But I find that a lot of galleries these days still expect the artist to still do all that stuff in addition to being part of the gallery. Yeah, but I mean, it's okay if they've got an Instagram account and they're having an exhibition. Yes, of course, they're going to promote their exhibition. That's natural. But I think there's too much on Instagram, too much work in progress on Instagram as well. It's my view, but I mean, lots of people don't agree with me. <laughs> I was going to say, so like, how do you feel about that? Because I've talked to some people, some like collectors and stuff, they love the behind the scenes, the process videos, all this kind of stuff. Like me, I'm very old school. I only put finished works, like, and that's it, because I don't want people to like something halfway through the process and be like, oh. It has happened that I've liked something halfway through the process, and when I go and see the finished thing, I don't like it. The artist has ruined it. I know, and that's the dilemma. It's very dangerous to put the half thing there, you know. Well, and that's why, like, I refuse. Well, I shouldn't say I refuse. At the moment, I will not put up half-done works or in-process works. I'll put them in stories, so that if you know, for, so it's up for twenty-four hours. You can see it sort of in process, but it goes away, so you can never reference it again. Good idea. Uh, maybe people, some people pick up on that. That's a really good idea. 
stories. Because I'm fine with them seeing it for a little bit, but like they can't remember it and quote me back and show it. They say like, hey, I want to buy this piece because it's not there. <laughs> yeah, I use my, my posting for finished pieces, my stories for like, you know, in process stuff because that way they can't come back and say, hey, I want to buy this thing because it's only there for 24 hours. Because in 24 hours, I'll probably change it. But you see, another question I'm frequently asked, and I'll ask it for you, is why I have so many artists and how I can look after so many artists, which, of course, I can't. You know, artists are at different points in their careers, their development, and they can't all have ready pieces to sell. They don't. They might imagine they do, but they don't. Well, I don't think your roster is all that huge. Well, some people only have half a dozen people on their roster. I mean, some galleries. But to a certain extent, that's like putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Like, and what happens if two of them have a bad year? Suddenly, your gallery is screwed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and to a certain extent, you also have the. I mean, I'm going to say this in a nicer way, but like, to a certain extent, you have the luxury that you can represent more people because you don't have to store the work. You don't have a brick and mortar place where you have to pay to have a storeroom full of works for anybody to walk in at any given moment. So, to a certain extent, this model of this is allowing you to be able to work with more artists because you don't have to put that investment in there. When If somebody wants to see the work and I have to show it and I haven't got an exhibition of that artist, I will have the work brought to our office and we will show it or to the client's home if they want it shown in their home, whatever they want. But as you say, that's not a full-time storage investment. Yeah, which, I mean, like I worked at a gallery at one time and we had like a massive storage place in the back because we also dealt with sculpture and other things like this. And it just sat there, you know, not being looked at for 95% of the time we rented it, which is the hope that somebody would show up wanting to to buy this thing that's in the back that nobody can even see or know about. This is pre-internet too, so yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. Everything's changing. Indeed. It's changing constantly. It's changing as we speak. There's always something else that we have. We've been approached by NFT people now, you know. I was literally going to ask you about that as you were like, things are changing. What about NFTs? What do you think of NFTs? I personally think they're a scam. Well, I do too, but. And money laundering. It's not something that I'm interested in. But I don't know about the blockchain and the authenticity of the work and all that. I mean, I haven't looked into it and I've asked. My colleague to look into it was more sort of technically minded. It has its legitimacy. I mean, it's it's basically a visual token of a Bitcoin. So like if you understand and like Bitcoins, then you would understand and appreciate NFTs. But I find it just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still having a bit of difficulty. I feel like it has a lot of potential and this is like the first generation of it. And I never buy anything in the first generation. I always wait for like the third iteration of something before they've worked out the kinks and the bugs. And then I'll, then I'll sort of jump on it. But this is still the first generation to me. Yeah, so we'll see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of scary as well, but that, you know, something that's internet-based can be worth so much money because internet is sort of just moving images that disappear. So now it's trying to concretize them, isn't it? I mean, it's a great opportunity for 
you know, visual creators who have often been outside the the traditional gallery structure to be able to sort of be part of something similar to it not the same but similar and it's great i mean it gives more people opportunity so i'm not questioning that part of it i just don't like the structure of it where it's the the blockchain thing and you have to pay some company for something i think it's still a bit of basically i i, I wish it was designed to for the financial benefit of the artists instead of the companies that run the blockchain exactly that's that's my issue yeah but you know you're talking about for instance galleries taking 50 percent, and you were happy if they took over the whole promotion and business side but also you know the galleries that take 50 percent don't actually make 50 percent because invariably they have to deal with the person who's purchasing and they deal on their 50 percent don't deal on the artists 50% if they are correct and artist-friendly. Oh, yeah. I've worked in galleries where we built in 10 to 15% with the expectation that we're going to be haggled and negotiated down to some lower price. I mean, this is, you know, that, and that's one of those weird things in the arts industry that sort of isn't discussed when people talk about how do you price your work? It's like, well, you price it with an extra 50% for a gallery, but and then even put another 10, 15% on top of that because you know you're going to have to haggle down to make the customer feel like they're getting a deal also. Oh, yes, but we don't put the prices up. The price of a painting from our gallery would be the same as the price of a painting from the artist's studio. The artist is giving us 50% to do the work for him. Oh, yeah, no, I'm talking about how an artist prices. So, like, and the artist's price mustn't change. Well, that's a different issue, yes. We can talk about that, too. I mean, if it goes up, it goes up everywhere. Yes. Right? It's the same if a company buys direct from the artist or from the gallery. Correct. That's how it has to be. These days. I mean, if the artist, you know, knows the person and it's a friend and they want to give them a fantastic discount, okay. But, you know, it is at least the price. The person who gets the discount knows that the price is the same as in the gallery. Okay. Starts that. But wait one second, I want to go back. You don't put on your website or in any sort of public venue, basically, the price. Because that's a debate. We have the prices on our website. Okay. If you go on our website and you see a painting, there'll be just a description. You click on the painting, and then you see all the details behind, including the price. Okay, so you do put the price. Very rare it says inquire. Sometimes it does because, for instance, some artists will say, okay, you can put the price up to £4,000 and beyond that, inquire. So I do as the artist requires. But most of the time, the price is there. Well, because a lot of there's a debate about whether or not you should put prices basically on the internet for art or not. And generally, it's, you know, when they get to the higher values, they say, no, don't put the price. There's a point where it's too high to put. I totally agree. I don't understand that because I still would like to know the value of it. Well, you know, I suppose when there's something is, you know, over 50,000, it becomes a little bit delicate to put the price up. Is that the price, 50,000? That's where it's like, eh, let's not put the price. That seems to be so. Yeah. But I mean, no, but as I said, I have one artist who doesn't want his prices up to 4,000 put the price up. You know, this is a, a point of contention because we have been, do we put the prices up? Don't we? We didn't used to. We did. But because of the internet, people want prices. If you have an internet art fair, as we've been having during lockdown, the prices are there. So it's now become something that maybe the galleries do. There are many galleries that still don't do it. 
Well, you kind of have to because like I have done it where I've gone down the rabbit hole of like, oh my God, I love this person's work. Oh my God, I love it. And I've done research and looked at websites and da, da, da. And then like after half an hour or 45 minutes of looking, suddenly I, I find a price and it's like way out of my budget. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, you know, why if, if you could have given me that price in the first like 30 seconds, I could have just stopped looking because <laughs> it, it's, it's really hard because like you want to, you want to be able to look within your means. Like you, you kind of wish that you, it's like the those websites out there, you know, Artsy and all these other places where you can like search by a price point kind of thing. So you're not even looking at things you simply can't afford, which is great. But on the other hand, and, it, and a lot of people do. And But on the other hand, it's also nice to see aspirational work saying like, oh, you know, that I want to save up to buy that. But I still want to know what the price is. But one does want to know what the price is. So we're catering to the person who wants to know what the price is. Well, I mean, it's like if I went to Zara and I said, hey, I really love this outfit, and they didn't put the price up. Like, what What? What industry other than, I don't know, what, luxury, jewelry, handbags, and art doesn't potentially put the prices up? That's right. Maybe, you know, if something's bespoke, the price isn't up. Depends on what you order. I love the term bespoke, but yeah. I know. Bespoke Rolls Royce. Even a bespoke suit, which I love a good one. You can say starts at. <laughs> yes, it's always start at, and then when you start like buying extra buttons or different fabrics, suddenly it's like three times that starting at price. Drives me nuts. All right. Are there any other topics uh, related that, you, that I have not asked you about that you would like me to ask you about? Not that pops to mind, actually. Or any topic that you want to talk that you want to talk about that we haven't discussed? No, I I, I just wanted to talk about that fifty percent just now, which is why I brought it up. But the fifty percent is tradition, and yeah, I mean it, it's hard. Like I remember a time when artists buying from artist studios was the way that you could get a low priced piece of art that you then you know the value was the price that the gallery would sell. But these days you can't do that. There's no sort of separation between that anymore. So the price is the price, no matter where you buy it, and it has to be fixed. It can't work otherwise. Well, but I'll tell you, I ran into a problem with that. I lived in the United Arab Emirates, very expensive market there. Then I moved to Prague, let's just say not so expensive market there. And so in the UAE, my prices were whatever, let's say 5,000 euros. Okay, and then when I move to Prague and I try and say I go to a gallery and I say, "Hey, this is my work, and the price of this is five thousand euros." They say, "Oh, well, you, it, you'll never be able to sell here. That's not the market here." And I said, "But I don't care about the market here. It's that's the market value, and it's very difficult because in some regions, of course, art is valued more than others. So, you know, you're in the UK, very high market value there. But if you try and put sell that in." Oklahoma in the United States, they're going to be like, oh my God, that's insanely expensive. So it's really hard because you have to actually have a consistent price that somehow fits like a, almost like an average so that like lower markets could, it would be an expensive piece and in higher markets, it might be a cheaper piece to make it sort of affordable all the way around. I mean, expensive painting would be 20,000 pounds. Yeah. I mean, most of our paintings are, are on five, seven. 
And some, and there's smaller paintings are around two, two and a half. So we're not selling at very high prices. Well, but my point is, is that you have to come up with a price that would suit people in various different places because I would imagine most of your clients are not in the UK. Am I right on that? But where are most of your clients? Well, they're in the UK, most of our clients. Most are in the UK, okay. I know we have sold through Artsy, obviously, to America and that sort of thing, but they don't seem to mind paying more. In America. How, how does that go, like selling an online thing that somebody's never seen in reality? Well, I'll give you an example. I had a young artist that we showed from America. We didn't continue with him because he was very expensive. And he was straight out of college. And he was already, you know, charging twice what he would have been charging here coming out of an art school here. Because the art schools tell the artists how to price their work. And that's America for you. Be careful. I'm both an American and a professor. Okay, so you advise the artist how to price their work? I always, I always advise students to price low be in going out of school. Not not super low. I mean, they still have to you know pay rent and all that. But like low because basically once you go high, you can never go down. So like you have to start at a reasonable price point right out of school and then slowly build it, you know, every two years, you know, increase 20% or whatever kind of thing. Like, so build it over your course of your career. No, I am not a, an advocate for high priced right out of school. So I don't know what happened in New York, whether that was the school that advised that artist. It's a very good school or whether he just decided that was his price himself. He might have, but it was high for such a young artist. Some people just have big egos too. Maybe, yeah. There are trends, you know, young artists, they see art selling for huge amounts of money. And they think, well, my art's as good as that. And they're right. Well, they may be absolutely right, but it takes time to create a collector base. It does. And that's a hard thing because... Collectors, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, you know, one of the things that I'm really, really bad at is keeping in touch. So I'm, I'm great with being social. I can do the whole networking. I can go to galleries, meet everybody in the room. I'm good at all that kind of stuff, but I'm horrible with keeping in touch. And that's one of those things that... It's also quite difficult because you can keep in touch when somebody is not open to being kept in touch with at that particular time in their life. You don't know what's going on. And you can keep in touch too much. And, and then, of course, there's keep in touch too little and then keep in touch in too friendly a way versus a professional way or too professional way when they want friendly and like, ugh. You can't get it right. It's impossible. That's why we don't send out too many newsletters. We don't want to bombard people. Oh, my God, Aleph Contemporary again. <laughs> yeah, artsy again. My God, they send out too many emails as far as I'm concerned. That's right. One's eyes glaze over. Or just delete them like I do. I don't think there's any recipe. I know, but I want a recipe. That's my thing. <laughs> like, I so want a recipe. All right. Anyways, let's finish or wrap this up with uh, so moving out of COVID. Are you all moving out of COVID? Yeah, we are. Okay. But my question is sort of like what are your what what are your ideas or your prospects for sort of like as we're coming out? Sort of how do you see the art world sort of redefining itself post-COVID? Well, the freeze is coming up and everybody's very excited about that. Uh, we've got our own exhibitions coming up at the In and Art Club. We have the London Art Fair in January. We're just getting on with it now. 
It's going to be all right. So back to business as normal. Like my my question, sort of like, is what's changed? Is there going to be something different? Wear mask on the bus, <laughs> you know, or going into department stores. Some people do. Some people don't. They don't have to, but I do. Some people are very frightened about coming back into a normal atmosphere. Some people will hold back. Maybe if they've got underlying health problems, they really be more careful legitimate yeah and one has to respect that certainly all right um i generally wrap up with like your questions such as do you have any either advice that you've ever received that would be great for the younger generation to hear um or some advice from your own set of experiences the best advice i ever had was to always look at the best which is why i'm in museums so much and i was told if you always look at the very best, you'll know what's inferior. But don't spend your time in the markets, you know, the flea markets and things to learn. That's not where you learn. You learn looking at the very best. Go to Sotheby's, go to Christie's, go to the museums. Amen. I agree 100%. That trains your eye. Marvelous. And look at art from every period and all over the world. Don't just look at one thing. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was lovely talking to you, Matt. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation. After all, I am a professor. I like learning. I've learned a lot myself about many of the things that I did wrong in my career thus far and many of the things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Ron Helt for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you, Ron Helt. R-N-O-H-E-L-T-T. Don't know how to pronounce it correctly. I hope I got it right. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple's podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information on Instagram at the wise fool pod or on our website which is simply wisefoolpod.com mm-hmm.